Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Hi, okay, it is just Aaron here. Sarah has bailed on me and left me to my own devices to introduce um, the episode this week, but she will she will unfortunately be in the interview that you're about to listen to. Um, okay, so this week, this episode, we have Julia Borston. Everyone is obsessed with her book that just came out. I guarantee you're gonna wanna read it, especially after listening to our conversation. The book is called When Women Lead, What They Achieve, why they succeed, and how we can learn from them. And she has a very positive take on women in business and um, just helping us understand how we got here, what our struggles are, um, what our assets are as women. And I don't mean our assets, you know what I mean? But actually our gifts and what makes us great in business. And she's just awesome. She's incredibly smart. She has an amazing story. The book is fantastic. And um, we are very lucky to have her. It's a great conversation. We know you're going to love it. So don't go anywhere. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for for being here. We really Thank have to... Thank you so much for doing this. We really need to show up today. I think that... I was actually just going to say, can you not use your Elizabeth Holmes vibes already? Can okay. you just be yourself? Sarah does a thing when we're talking to like professional people who are smart. She sort of like takes on a different persona. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised she's not wearing you, her, you her turtleneck. You have no Elizabeth Holmes vibes. There's no, there's well, no Elizabeth Holmes. When, when we had Katie Hahn on the podcast, I may or may not have shown up with a briefcase and glasses with no prescription in them. <laughs> and, think- a tur- and a turtleneck. And she was like, hello, welcome to our show. So hello, you are wonderful. You are smart on your own. Just be yourself. I do get really, I'm not going to lie, get really intimidated when we have people such as yourself on the podcast. I'm super intimidated. You two are so intimidating. You're so, you're so amazing and impressive and beautiful with no makeup on. It's very intimidating. I agree. You should be intimidated. Look at us in our sweats. Just barely holding on. Okay, Julia, we have, uh, we're very excited to have you here. Are you on a crazy whirlwind book tour currently? Are you like hour on the hour? How's it working? Um, So yes. And I just, I was off work last week. This week I'm back doing my day job also, which is being a reporter on CNBC. So I'm very happy to be home in my own bed again and not in San Francisco or New York, but also just like trying to keep it all together. So what I really liked about your book is that, and you mentioned this in the book, we've been having the conversation for a long time about women in business and how we navigate family starting, you know, being- I know where you're going with this. You do? Yep. Being all the things that we are expected to be as women and also being career women and or career people. And it- Typically, the the narrative is negative. I mean, the neg- the narrative is definitely negative in my mind. I'm thinking like, you know, yeah. the time you're supposed to be gearing up your career is the exact time you're supposed to be finding someone to marry and starting a family. And most women kind of, there's a really tough trade-off there. So what I was really surprised by from your book is that it's extremely positive. And it's positive about women in business. It's positive about the role that we play. It's positive how we are as leaders. It, it acknowledges all the challenges that are thrown at us, but it's I like think a very it, positive spin on and it. And I think it also, it's like you give permission to be passionate about your career, to ha- still be super ambitious, but to also say my children's milestones are more important than any of it. Right. But it yeah. doesn't mean like, but I just want to be a mommy. I mean, it really was, it really, I really gravitated to that as well. 
Um, I also have something to admit. Shall we let her speak or no? <laughs> yeah, we should. I just was going to admit one thing okay. is that you said in the book that um, when you were pregnant, many people would say to you, um, so are you planning to keep working or um, are you going to have to quit because you're a mom? And when I read that, I realized, I think I've for sure said that to women before. I think if I met a woman in a high powered job and saw she was pregnant, I think my instinct would be, well, how you're not gonna be able to do everything, right? So are you going to keep working? So there's, there's bias that we all have even as women towards each other. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I actually think the comments were not like, are you, it was like, well, you're definitely not going to keep working. It was like, there's no way you're going to keep working and have kids. And I remember being really like scared. Like I, I love my job. I wanted to keep working. I wanted to be a good mom. Like this feeling of like, people were telling me I was going to fail before I even had a chance to try to succeed. So take us through how we got here. Take us through your story and, and, how this book came about and your background. So I've been a business reporter for over 20 years. I was started straight out of college at Fortune magazine and straight out of straight out of Harvard. Straight out of Harvard. You can say it. Princeton. Straight out of Princeton. Oh, Princeton. Sorry. Even better. <laughs> um straight so I was graduated from Princeton, was really lucky to get a job like before the stock market crashed in 2000. And I was the youngest person they had ever hired. And I was really lucky in that even though I didn't have any background in business or finance, I had these amazing mentors who taught me all of these things. And I had a little bit of imposter syndrome and this feeling of like, oh my God, I have to prove that I have the right to be here. So I totally overprepared. And I think my insecurity about not knowing the fundamentals of how to read all these documents actually turned out to be an advantage because I could sort of over-prepare to get there. And I knew that I had to like learn all this stuff that other people maybe already knew. Um, so I, and I was really lucky to have amazing male mentors, but I also saw in this world that not only was the, the magazine dominated by men at the very top, but the business world we were reporting on, it was all run by men, period. And my mom had been like, by the time you grow up, things will be equal. She was totally wrong. I saw it in front of my face with all these people we were interviewing every day at Fortune. And, you know, it was a little bit discouraging, but I figured out how to navigate this world. And then when I went to CNBC and was on, became an on-air reporter, I slowly started to see more women in positions of power. And some of them were like people like Sheryl Sandberg, who is COO of Facebook. And then on the startup side, I slowly, slowly started to see more women. And I was so inspired by them. Like, I am not a risk taker. I've been at the same company for 16 years. But I was really, I was like, these women who are taking risks and succeeding, despite the fact that every odd is stacked against them. I was like, wow, they are amazing. And it started off me like really just wanting to tell their stories. And back to Elizabeth Holmes share this idea that not every female leader is Elizabeth Holmes. She is the outlier. And all these amazing women who are doing uh, unbelievable things and changing business and changing the world, they're doing it in their own way and not trying to fit into some like masculine, low-voiced box of what a leader is supposed to look like. It is crazy that, you know, you speak about you remember so vividly that conversation you had with your mom. This was not like in the 70s. This was like not actually that long ago. This was like yeah. the 90s, which was not that long ago. And I think we're all sort of um, the same age here. But I remember being that age as well with my mom. And honestly, like it didn't occur to me that women could be uh, 
venture capitalists, founders. It just wasn't a thing. In the 90s, it was the yeah. same for us. Startups, like all of our, like being a CEO. Oh my like, God. It wasn't even a thing. I yeah. didn't even, by the way, Aaron and I didn't even start this new part of our career until, you know, eight years ago. Speak for yourself. No, but listen, if I'm being really honest, when I was 25 years old, for me, an accredited investor was like a man. Was It was unattainable. Yeah. It wasn't even yeah. within... Um, it wasn't even within like the scope of something I could even, the point is this was not that long ago that women yeah. really didn't have a seat at the table. But I love that your mom was totally. a feminist and really, and really pushed the boundaries for her generation and encouraged you to expect to push the boundaries and sort of take your place and not be told which place that you should be in. And yeah. will you talk about your, your early days at Fortune Magazine, you, you wrote in the book about and I think a lot of women really relate to this. So this is an interesting topic. We feel as women often that we have to either use our sexuality to our advantage or we have to hide our sexuality. And you talk about wearing glasses, thick glasses that you didn't even need. And oversized and, suits. And oversized <laughs> yeah. suits and trying Classy to suits. disguise yourself. And it was making me think about how... I relate to that. We put so much pressure on women to make sure that we don't tempt anyone in the office, that we don't draw attention to ourselves. We don't make them want to um, make advances towards us, that it's sort of our job to control their impulses. Um, will you talk about your experience with that? Or just like our job to fit in to some weird, you know, expectation. And so I kept on getting comments from the older men who I was interviewing, because everyone was older than me, and they were all men, like, oh, how could you possibly know what you're talking about? Like, you don't know about my business. Like, why are you pressing me about my declining returns? Like, you don't know anything. How could you possibly know anything? And I just remember people like discounting me because I was a young woman and like thinking that I must be an idiot. And I was like, what can I do to make myself be taken more seriously? And, and like, I, you know, I wore these glasses, like I really only need to wear the glasses in movie theaters, but like I was wearing these glasses and trying to sort of, I think about it, my like Clark Kent outfit of like the glasses in the suit. And it wasn't really who I was, but it was like this persona of like serious business reporter, uh, version of myself that I needed to like put on as like a costume to feel like I could compete in that world. But what I'm hopeful about, and I am really hopeful despite all this craziness is that now I feel like people can really be more themselves. And actually being yourself is so empowering. And I remember when I was um, first, soon after I started at CNBC, meeting some of these women who were just like, wow. Like they, there was this woman, one woman, Mindy Grossman, like she will dress in like full Alexander McQueen. I think she was wearing like a pink Chanel suit, like really bold, like Is she Weight Watchers? Is she the CEO what? of Weight Watchers? Mindy? No, that's Mindy Crossman. Yeah, so she used to be CEO of Weight yeah, Watchers. Yeah. Before that, she was CEO of HSN. And I just remember like meeting up with her and she was like fully glammed out with the nails and the hair. And I was like, wow, like she is a CEO. And yet she does not feel like she has to fit into some sort of stereotype. And I was like, wait a second, maybe I can not have to try to look like I'm I'm blending in with all the dudes. And, and then I started noticing that these women were like, you know, like, fuck it. I'm going to do it my own way. Like, let me just be myself. And Mindy talks about how when she was a CEO, she was like going back and forth from the company headquarters to being with her daughter. And she was like, guys, I'm leaving because I'm going to go be with my daughter. I'm going to work harder than everyone. Don't worry, I'm not getting my job done, but I am going to be traveling to deal with my kid. And I think this moment of being like, well, maybe it's okay for me to admit that I have a soccer game or whatever, you know, that's just part of who I am, but you know, I'm going to get the job done. And I feel like I've seen these women lead in their own ways and do their own thing. 
And in many ways, because you already don't fit the expectation of what a CEO or what a boss looks like, you're kind of liberated about even how you think about your business. There has been such a shift and um, so much good has come from, you know, I know you don't, you talk a little bit about the Me Too movement, right? But like, I do think things have changed. I really feel the change. I really feel like, you know, when I had my first child 11 years ago, I was on a TV show and I was terrified to tell executives I was pregnant. I was like, I would like, I was like, think the stress that I put on myself at night, I'm surprised I had like a healthy pregnancy. I was, I was like, my career is over. And this is 11 years ago. I yeah. was like, I am, what am I going to do? Like, this is, it's over for me. Like, truly, those are the thoughts I had. And I'm like, you know, a pretty like even keel person. But I do think, uh, I don't know if okay, maybe true. I'm not, <laughs> but I do think 11 years later, and you can talk more to this, we have come far. We have come oh, 100%. really And I have an 11-year-old really too. Okay. So I remember. So I was hiding my pregnancy until I was about halfway through it. I didn't want anyone to be able to tell I was pregnant. When it was obvious that I was pregnant and I was like nine months pregnant interviewing people, I remember these men coming up to me and like before I would interview them, they'd like rub my belly and comment on the sides of my breasts and be like, oh, your body has changed. And I'd be like, wait a second, I'm about to interview you about your business and you're commenting on my breasts? Like what is going on here? And that was okay. 11 years ago. And then I remember going back to work with my, like my pumping supplies and I was schlepping around my, like my breast pump and my ice packs. And I was, I was compensating for all my guilt about being away from my kid by, by pr pumping, no matter what city I was in. And there were no lactation rooms. I'd be on the, like the floor of a bathroom in a convention center, like teach you, teach you, teach you with the breast pump. And it was crazy. And people, I remember at one company being like, Hey, do you have a room where I could I could pump and the CEO or the, you know, the PR people I was dealing with would be horrified that I would even bring up the idea of like breast milk in an office. And then fast forward to after I had my second kid to, you know, almost three years later, and there were like lactation rooms and it was a thing. And then I remember noticing the more Silicon Valley offices I would go to just like five years ago, everyone had a lactation room. So I think there was this like shift from me talking about breast milk being something that made people hugely uncomfortable to companies being like, wait a second, this is something that happens. We don't want every woman to quit after she has kids. Let's try to make them less uncomfortable. Okay. I need more Jenny Kane pieces in my house and I'm moving soon. So I actually would love some gifted things to me if they're listening. Um, because everything on Jenny Kane is very, I feel like you put it out there on a regular basis. How like, and they just, I don't know. I'm moving. Back. Oh my God. They're couches. Oh my God. That chair. Okay. Well, I will say that Jenny Kane makes this cashmere throw blanket. They have amazing slippers, pillows, throws. It's pretty much like they also have dinnerware and serveware. I mean, literally anything you want to do to make yourself look a little bit more elevated. Let me land the plan here. She's created the all encompassing aesthetic which means the sofa, the rug, the lamps, the countertop stuff. It's called home goods, babe. Home goods. Anyway, everything's great. Please use our discount. It's a great discount and it's very worth it. So we want you to elevate every day at JennyKane.com. Get 15% off your first order when you use the code FOSTER at checkout. That is 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code FOSTER. 
Okay, so we all care about our faces, Sarah especially. I mean, I really do. It's literally all you care about. Yeah. Um, I care about my face more than I care about certain family members. Well, that's obvious to people who know you. Yeah. Um, So Kitsch is a hair care company that's also a skincare company. So I had them send me these satin pillowcases. And so now I put them on my pillowcases and it really helps me with those crow's feet. Well, it took me a long time. You always facials and dermatologists are like, you don't understand. A, you cannot sleep on your stomach, but if you insist, because I'm a stomach sleeper, if you insist on sleeping on your stomach, you have to have satin. You have to have your face because it will not crinkle Mm -hmm. it up. Also, did you know that satin is vegan and cruelty-free? Not like silk, which is made from silk worms. I care more about just, will it give me wrinkles? Or yeah, you don't it? care, don't about, care the about the other The worms are not interesting to you. No. Um, they also make, oh, these went viral on TikTok, these heatless satin curling rollers. So you put the rollers in, you sleep in them, and then you just wake up with uh, wavy hair. I think the holidays are heat. approaching. This is a great stocking stuff. It is. It is and really. also just a great, it's a great like office gift. This is, I would take advantage of this discount and get ahead of the holiday shopping. Because not everything is great for holidays, but this is. It's true. So Kitsch is offering 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash foster. That is right. It is 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-E ch.com slash foster. One more time. It is mykitch.com slash foster for 30% off your order. I want to ask something and maybe I'm going to phrase this in a bad way or it's controversial and I want you to say no if you disagree, but well, thank God it's we're okay. not live. We'll edit you out. No, I was, I was walking, talking to my mom the other night and she was asking me about, um, my friends and who's with this person or that person, what stage of everyone's lives. And I was saying to her like, oh God, it's just so fucking hard to be a woman right now, be 38 and single, or all of a sudden you're 40 and single because one day you're 25 and everyone's like, you've got all the time in the world. And then all of a sudden you're 30 and your career starts to thrive and you focus on that. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, wait, I'm 40. Did I just make the decision for myself that, 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 that I did career instead of having kids? And and she said to me, she was like, I'm so grateful. Our mom didn't work growing up. She said, I'm so grateful that I didn't have the pressure to be everything. Mm. I was allowed to be a mom and I was happy being a mom, proud of being a mom and no one looked down on me for it. And today you can't really do that without being judged. And, and we were just having this conversation that was like, you know, I don't like this idea of pretending that men and women's experience is always going to be equal or always going to be the same because it's not right. Carrying a baby is very different than your partner carrying a baby. And when you're breastfeeding and you have a newborn baby, it's such an incredibly emotional time for you as it should be. And then let's say you have postpartum for a year and a half. Like what does it look like that women today feel like we have to be able to do that with this like stone cold face pumping in the office and then going into the boardroom? Like, is it, I'm not trying to say is like, are women not supposed to be doing that? But like, are we forcing this thing that mm, that's that sometimes is hard for a woman to do? Is it okay to say that? A hundred percent. It's yes. totally hard. And it's so interesting because I think part of it is just being able to acknowledge that it's hard. And, and me being able to say like, I'm sorry, I need to schedule 15 minutes to pump right now. So I cannot be on TV in that 15 minutes. And that was something that I didn't feel comfortable saying after my first kid was born, I would have been embarrassed and horrified, but I think that this stuff is getting destigmatized. And I also think companies are starting to realize that working moms are incredibly efficient and incredibly hardworking. And I was just, um, I was at Goldman Sachs talking about the book 
And I was talking to a, a woman who was an old friend of mine. I hadn't seen her in years, but we knew each other in New York like 20 years ago. And she took off 10 years to have her kids. She had three kids. And then Goldman Sachs has a program to bring people who took time off, women, to come back into the workforce. And it, she had only been there for a couple of weeks, but she was like, this is crazy. Like I was working like a crazy person. I took all this time off to have my kids and now I'm like back in it. So I think that companies are starting to create that kind of opportunity because they understand like not everyone is going to go back to work, you know, after three months like I did. And that doesn't work for everyone, but you don't want to lose those women forever from the workforce. But I think all of this is hard. And I think the more we can talk about it and destigmatize it, the better. And I feel very lucky that I had some of these older women tell me like, it's going to be hard, but it's okay. And like, here are some things that I did that worked for me and you just need to, I'm going to be here for you. And like, you have to pay it forward to other women. Um, And so I think like we need to help each other and also just like make it okay to talk about how hard all this stuff is. But I do hear what you're saying. Like I relate to that. I relate to when I had Josie, my second daughter, she's now six. We went into the writer's room for our TV show when she was 10 days old. And I felt like, no, I mean, I don't need a medal for it. I mean, it was just a writer's room. I wasn't like hold, doing hold labor, for, hold you know. For applause, hold for applause. Yeah, hold for applause. <laughs> um, no, that is hard. But of course. looking back, and I felt like shame around this, not shame, but like, yeah, kind of. Looking back, I was in no way feeling like I should be doing that. I had my kid in like a dark room every day, like this little room. But with, the writer's room was going to happen with or without you. It was going to, and I wish that I, well, I wish I had said, guys, like, can we push a couple weeks? Mm-hmm. Can we, like, I wish that I had felt um, enough security, enough, I, I wish I had felt more secure to where I felt like I can ask for that. Like, I can advocate for what I need. Instead, I was like, nope, I am a boss bitch and I can do it all and I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna be freaking tired and my hormones are gonna be raging. And, but it sucked. Like, it really yeah. did suck. Well, I'll say also that watching you during that time, you had your first daughter when you were young at 29. And I think that it put you on a trajectory. You hadn't fully had awareness that you were going to be put on. And all of a sudden you were in mom mode and you hadn't been able to start your career and you felt derailed by that. And so when you, by the time you had your second and your career was starting to thrive, you were like, I'm not sitting this one out to be a mom again. Like I did that the first time and now I want to work. And that's where it's so hard. Like we can't lie to ourselves or to anybody else or to other women and pretend like you don't kind of have to make a choice a lot of the time because it is hard to do both very well at the same time. Also, you got to like have sex with your husband at some point. Oh God. But also no one's doing a good job at everything at the same time. People are doing like one thing at a time and maybe they're doing a good job or maybe they're not. Um, but it's like constant decisions, constant trade-offs. And it's been so interesting, like talking to some of these female CEOs, like some of their husbands don't work or some of their husbands work for them. And, you know, like my husband has also has a crazy job. He's traveling for work right now. So it's like this idea of trading off. I haven't seen my husband in two and a half weeks because literally we are like ships passing in the night. And so- I think it's like no one has it all at the same time ever. And it's just a question of like which thing you have more of in which moment. I think it's really interesting how you talk about how so many strengths that we as women have get completely overlooked, but that they're actually such assets as leaders, as CEOs, as operators, as founders. Like, let's talk about some of those strengths that I think people sometimes like are judgmental about, but are actually such assets. 
Yeah. And I think people are particularly judgmental of themselves. And really, women are really hard on themselves. And there's so much data about imposter syndrome and the fact that women underestimate their own abilities compared to the way other people see them. So I started interviewing all these women and I ended up interviewing about 120 people. Thanks to the pandemic, I was at home in my slippers doing these interviews on Zoom. And I was so impressed by these women. And I started noticing these different characteristics. Like, they're so full of empathy. They're leading with vulnerability. And all of these were traits that you don't see in tr traditional stereotypical leadership. So I went from the stories to realizing if this book is going to be taken seriously, I need the data. I need the data to show that these characteristics that women are demonstrating are actually real strengths that both men and women should be leading with and embracing everyone, whether they're a leader or an employee or whatever. So um, I dug into this data and I, I found not only are these characteristics that these I found in the stories, like, like found to be really, really powerful, but also women are more likely to demonstrate them. So like leading with empathy, women rate higher on empathy tests. And like, it's, I have this really fun test that you can link to on my website, but it shows that you can, women are more able to relate to other people, understand what other people are thinking just based on like a black and white picture of their eyes. It's crazy. I, I made my husband take it and I rated much higher than he did. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. But like, but I, but it's so fascinating. And so, but like that actually ties into to the kinds of companies women are creating. So maybe women are identifying the need for more um, maternal care. I have an awesome maternal care company in my book called Mommy. Um, or for instance, like, like trying to do more in the femtech space, like all the health tech around fertility, like that is a space that has been totally overlooked forever because men were the ones founding the companies and investing in them. And women were all of a sudden saying like, hey, like we need these companies for us. So just to see these characteristics like vulnerability, it's hard to admit what you don't know, but if you do admit what you don't know, then you invite collaboration and it's much easier to hire amazing people from other companies who might want to come and work with you. So I talked to so many women who said that at first they thought that they would never succeed because like one of them, a couple of them were like, I'm an introvert. I hate talking. I hate pitching. These things are essential to being a good CEO, but I figured out how to use them to my advantage and actually make my company stronger um, to make sure that even people who have quiet voices can be heard in the room. So I think that we are sort of socialized to discount our personal traits if they don't fit into that narrow, like little narrow box of what leaders are supposed to look like. And I think, in fact, all of these traits can kind of be unleashed and leveraged as superpowers if we are aware of what they are and like stop discounting ourselves and our potential. So interesting when you say the vulnerability thing, because it goes against everything that we've been told of how to succeed as a woman in business is to not be vulnerable. Don't, of course, don't cry. Don't be emotional. Oh, don't take do things not personally. Cry. No, no, no. <laughs> but don't be, don't be overly sensitive to things. Like that's what we've been taught. And what you're saying is that you found with proof. You're not like saying, oh, this is what I think you guys should do. You're saying, I have talked to some of the most high level CEOs and founders in business and their strengths are vulnerability and leading with vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there was this one woman, Katrina Lake, she founded Stitch Fix. And I was interviewing investors. I was like, tell me like why you think Katrina Lake was so successful and able to start this company right out of business school. And everyone kept on saying, she's a talent magnet. I was like, what does that mean? Like to be a talent magnet. And they were like, she was able to hire these people who were so experienced and so senior to come to what at the time was a teeny tiny startup. And I was like, how did she do that? Like, we all want to be magnets for one thing or another. Like, I want to understand this. And I asked all these people questions about it. And ultimately, she Katrina said to me, she was like, look, I just admitted that I didn't know anything about algorithms. So I 
messaged this guy on, on LinkedIn. He was a VP of algorithms for Netflix. And I convinced him to come work for me. I was like, how did you do that? And she said, nobody wants to work for know-it-all. Mm. Everyone wants to go somewhere where they know that they're going to be valued and that their expertise is going to be like celebrated. So she said, by admitting, I know nothing about algorithms. She was able to attract these like algorithm geniuses. She also hired someone super senior from Walmart to her teeny little startup. So I think this sort of understanding that admitting what you don't know can make the whole organization smarter. And like, it's okay to admit what you don't know. There's a funny um, thing I found in the research, this idea of a, the beautiful mess effect. And we are all so hard on ourselves, but the research has found that if you do something embarrassing, you're gonna be really hard on yourself and far harder on yourself than if you saw someone else do the same embarrassing thing. So like I spill coffee on myself and then have to go into a crowded room, I would be humiliated or whatever the equivalent is, much worse, I'm sure. But then if I saw someone else do it, you'd be like, oh, poor guy, not a big deal. Like you just don't judge other people the same way you judge yourself. So seeing vulnerability in other people is endearing. And even though in yourself, you might be embarrassed about it, you definitely will embrace it in other people, which is why we should all be embracing it. We talk about this all the time, just in our personal lives. We talk about vulnerability and like the thing that connects us to other people is vulnerability. That is what actually, like my therapist has me doing this thing where he's like, you are very cold. You are very like shut off. Like you need, he has me doing this exercise where I like go to a party and where I walk up to somebody and I'm just like, hi, I like your shoes. I don't know. That's a bad, that's not exactly that, but just where I literally I'm vulnerable with somebody else because that is what connects you to other people. And business is about connecting, right? Like yeah. that's what yeah. it is about. I'm curious. Do you think there's anything like, is there any data? Is there any science around just I think as men and women, we ha we have different egos. And I think as women, we feel more okay sort of not passing the torch, but surrounding ourselves with other women who are smarter than us or are doing what we wish we were doing because we know that it's only going to elevate what we're trying to do. Whereas I think men are kind of like, I've got this. Like, he's not as good, right? Is there something about yeah. that or am I off? Totally. So men are more likely to lead if they're leaders in a hierarchical top-down way, like the stereotype of a guy in a corner office making the decisions. Men are more likely to say like, this is the plan and like you guys go execute it. Women are more likely to lead in a communal way. So like bringing in perspectives from across an organization and saying like, look, I don't know all the answers. Let's figure out what the best answer is together. So much more collaborative. And there's great data about turn-taking. Women are socialized, are trained to like take turns in conversations as opposed to one guy just, just steamrolling the conversation. And I mean, I've seen this and women are more like, what do you think? So that makes collaboration better. If you know that you want everyone to get a chance to talk, the group is going to collaborate a lot yeah. better. And so it, this is true, like both in teams and in like managing big companies, women are much more likely to want to collaborate. And it's really effective. Like everyone should be taking turns in conversation. Why should one person be dominating? So I think what's so great about this stuff is that even though it's women who have traditionally done this, men should be doing it too. Okay, Everly Well. Did you know, I did not know this. What? It was on Shark Tank. Everly Well is, because you know the kids are obsessed with Shark yeah, Tank. Yeah, your kids no, are they're obsessed. obsessed with Shark Tank. Everly Well is the single-handed, was that the word? Single-handed, most successful shark investment in Shark Tank history. What? Definitely fact-check that. Okay. But I'm pretty sure. Whoa. I know. Do you think you should have fact-checked it before you said it on our podcast? Probably, but yeah. it just came to me. That's because cool. Because I didn't know we were doing Everly Well. I'm I not thought, surprised. Yeah, that is the single most famous, uh, most successful wow. investment 
Isn't that incredible? Yeah, very incredible. So what Everlywell is, is they are a ton of different um, health tests that you can take easily at home, very affordably. You just do a little prick of the finger, drop you a little couple- You don't even couple, feel it. You don't feel little, it. Cu- a little couple- blood droplets mm-hmm. and you send it off. They have a pre, you know, prepaid shipping thing. And then, and then you get your results in days and, um, a healthcare professional like takes you through them. So you can do, um, they also make a lot of great supplements by the way. But you it's can- just really crazy that you used to have to make an appointment, wait for the availability, then go in, see the doctor, mm-hmm. let them analyze you and all that, and then order the tests. Mm-hmm. And then you got to make another appointment for those tests. They and gotta- it's expensive. It's just really crazy. So, so I love that science is taking us into the direction of saving time and money. Yeah, you love science. Uh, I- so for <laughs> listeners of the show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash foster. That is everlywell.com slash foster for 20% off your next at-home lab test everlywell.com slash foster just when you think like who could come up with a new luggage company all the luggage is out there in comes base and now everyone's talking about base you go to the airport now it's all about that base <laughs> it's all it's all about that. wow i am clever today I'm just glad you didn't break out into song. No, I I'm didn't. not prepared for that today. No. I always think like categories that are really busy. I'm mm-hmm. always like, oh, good luck. And this, they did oh. it. That's not very nice of you to be like, good luck. No, but just, you know, you would think luggage is sort of like a crowded category. Mm-hmm. How do you rise to the top? And all of a sudden, this base, I'm just seeing it everywhere. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors for shorter trips. The weekend bag, that's the one that I have, super functional. And it even has a place to store your shoes separately because shoes are disgusting. And um, they're really great. Love the stuff. It's so cool that through oh, the no, podcast, no. Sarah, we are sorry. Done. Just through the podcast, we get all these new products. I just, it's so cool. Right now, Base is offering our listeners fifteen percent off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash foster. Go to b e i s travel.com slash foster for fifteen percent off your first purchase. That is basetravel.com slash foster. Do you think, I've talked about this recently on the podcast, but I feel like I like haven't gotten the answer that I'm looking for. So I want to like ask you about it because it's perfect. Um, I was realizing recently um, that a guy that I know was saying that he was scared to give feedback to a girl who worked for him because the last girl he gave feedback to started crying and it made him uncomfortable. He was like, I don't want to make a girl cry. Like, I don't want to make her feel bad. But, you know, the guy in the office, I can say feedback and he's like, okay, cool. I'll change it. And the girl might go in the bathroom and cry. And I understand that that might be generalizing majorly, but I, I have a hard time. I mean, time. it is. I love feedback and I don't cry over it. Yeah. yeah. I love feedback. I'm always like, give me more feedback. That's what I wanted to ask you. Like a lot of women, myself included that I know, um, do have a hard time with feedback. And I feel that, and maybe you you feel differently, but what I witness is that as women, we weren't raised to be comfortable with feedback. We're raised to, you know, lean into our soft side and our emotional side and our sensitivity. And it, we have more leniency around taking things personally. And and men are sort of like, okay, you know, you punch each other in the face and you kind of move on. I don't think as women, we're, we're really like taught as young girls to be comfortable with feedback and to not personalize it. What, what do you witness with, with women in business? I think our daughters are though. Like, but, I'll but I'm, you- I'm going to flip it though. I'm going to flip it. And I wonder if your guy friend was giving different types of feedback to the women than he was to the guys. Mm. Cause the studies have shown that 
managers are much more likely to give women feedback based on their style, not on their substance. So like Mm. your tone seems really angry or your tone seems really mean. I've gotten feedback from people saying that my tone is mean or harsh, which Mm -hmm. is ridiculous because I'm interviewing people. (laughs) Right. You like reported on earnings, right? You reported something, (laughs) earnings or or something, and you got calls from the CEO being like, that was, you were really hard on that person, right? Am I butchering that story? Yeah. No, I mean, I got, I did an interview with a woman CEO and afterwards a man called me and I was trying to book a CEO with uh, an interview with his CEO that he worked with. And he was like, well, I don't know, like your tone was just really mean. And I was like, my tone was mean? Like, wait a second, I was doing an interview. Like, she didn't think my tone was mean. Her company didn't think my tone was mean, but you're telling me that you're perceiving me like doing my job as being mean. But so this is what I wonder about your guy friend. It's possible that he's not realizing that he's giving feedback that's more like stylistic to the women and not giving actual tangible, like your performance is missing X, Y, and Z. And what's a bummer about the fact that women are more likely to get feedback on style rather than substance is they're missing out on like actually really valuable feedback. Like we all need feedback on the substance of what we're doing. But if he's telling this young woman that she's like, seems annoying or whatever the feedback is going to be and something that's not about her performance, that's a different thing. So, and so I think there's like, I do think people need to get used to feedback. And um, so I think that's the question for him, but then there's this other question of like, how do we make sure we are all really good at getting feedback and pushing ourselves to improve? And um, there's this really interesting research about how female athletes do better in business. Now I was not an athlete. I wish I had been once I saw all this research, But I was really curious, like, why is that? Like, why are female athletes better in business? Is it because they're trained to compete against other teams and businesses kind of like that? And it turns out it's really not. It's something that ties into why, like, people who are serious, you know, violinists or, I mean, I did dance and you guys probably know Catherine Power, but she was a a professional ballet dancer. I'm not, I'm sorry, not ballet, a modern dancer and did professional performance as a dancer and faced constant criticism. And the reason why these these experiences are so valuable, whether it's dance or athletics is because it's constant failure. Like you're not going to win every game your team plays. You'll probably lose half of them and figuring out how to learn from each minor defeat. So this idea that you're going to fail and you have to figure out how to learn from the failure. What were the things you could have controlled better? What are the things that were totally out of your control? So you shouldn't let that bother you. And what are the things that maybe you could do better next time? And so that kind of like constant like self-reflection analysis, I was going to fail, it was okay, enables you to like quickly bounce back and go on to the next game, if you will. So I think, you know, women especially have to understand not to take stuff personally. If someone was like, you you, you bombed that one, it was, but like, let's figure out what you can learn from the fact that that was a total bomb. It's so true. Athletes are implementing feedback from the age of like five. Mm-hmm. Like any professional athlete started this shit when they were five, six, seven. Yeah. Makes sense. It totally makes sense. It's baked into your human experience that you're going to be watching the tape back and it's like, okay, here's where you did things wrong and here's how you can be better. you have to go back tomorrow and do it again. And and you just have to kind of like move on. And like Catherine Power faced constant criticism. Every, you know, like being a dancer, you're criticized for everything, but you would audition, criticize, go back the next day. And that's why she just doesn't care what people think. She's going to do what she knows is right because she knows herself and she knows what she's good at. And so that's the ability to like, gain from the like feedback that's really useful and then turn out tune out the noise or the bias or whatever it is like that's the balance that's going to get you further so what do we do for our daughters if they are um i mean sarah's daughters are not the most athletic right josie's more athletic but i, I doubt there's a professional future for them they definitely did not get my athleticism or their dad's, or their dad's. <laughs> 
who was a professional athlete. Um, so what do you think, I mean, this is just sort of you as a smart, successful woman who, you know, wrote this book and, and is in business and as a mom, what can women do to raise their daughters to be comfortable getting feedback and turning it into something that powers them even further? Yeah. Daughters and also sons. I have two boys. I was just going to say, yeah. We live in this, like everyone gets an award world and like, that's not how it works in the real world. Like not everyone's going to get a medal. Um, But I think it's like your kid doesn't have to be a professional athlete, right? They don't even have to play sports in high school or college. I just think this idea of like getting out in the field, knowing you're going to fail sometimes and that afterwards you can have a conversation on the way home about what you were proud about, about your performance and like what you could have done better next time and like maybe how to be better part of the team. I think just like normalizing that and normalizing fail failure um, is really important. And there's so much research about how if you normalize failure, people are more creative. Like people try harder if they're not so afraid that putting themselves out there is going to result in like career ending Mm. failure, career ending defeat. Pushing our kids to take a risk. Like, yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah. You're scared to try out for the play because what if you don't don't get picked? But who cares? If you don't get picked, you don't get picked. Like we can move on from that. Right. Let's just be real for a second. Okay. Okay. I thought thought we were being real. No, we are. But but like I I, I just posted this on Instagram because I was so mad. I didn't realize that at my daughter's school, she is 11, everyone makes the team. Okay. And- And I understand that the school is coming from a place of like equal opportunity. We want everyone to feel good. But I'm like, guys, we, this is, and maybe I want to know how you feel, but I think we are raising the most thin skinned generation of all time. I'm like, I said to my daughter, I go, honey, let me tell you something. The world out there is a big, bad place. And you need to know that you are, there's going to be colleges you're not going to get into. There's going to be things that aren't going to happen for you. You're not going to get the job you want. Like, we need to start preparing our kids for the real world now. And these things of everyone gets a medal, everyone makes the team, I don't agree with. I mean, I, it's so funny because like my kids, they're fine at basketball, but they're not the best at basketball. And sometimes they complain and don't want to play. And I'm like, is it because you know the other team is really good and you guys are going to lose? Like, that's fine. Like, go out there and play and be part of the team. So I think that, um, that I, I mean, for me, it's more about like letting them have the little wins and the little losses and having it just be so frequent that they don't even notice. It's like, it's not a big deal to lose anymore, but I definitely force them to no, go but play like the, she, She's missing out on like that grit, right? That grit that probably so many yeah. of these outliers have, right? Where they come, where they have to deal with adversity and all these things that make yeah. them who they are. It's like, okay, you're not, I want you to not make the team. So you go practice five yeah. days a week you you learn work ethic and then you make the team. Okay, so like when you to the question to you two who have kids, when your kids have when one kid has a birthday and they're getting presents and a party and all that stuff, and the other kid or kids is like, "What about me? I don't have anything." Do you guys give your other kids also like one present that, that day such or a no? Random question because I know parents who do no, that. You know what? My parents do. My parents do. So the grandparents show up with a present for each. But kid. grandparents can do <laughs> whatever I'm like, they want. Come on, he'll get his birthday in a couple months. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. It's really funny, but I feel like also understanding, like, like having the kids watch me write this book. I was like, I'm working really hard on this. I'm not getting a lot of sleep. This really matters to me, but you need to know that like, I'm going to prioritize this. I'm not going to go to some of your basketball games. Dad's going to go with you because I'm, this is something I need to do for me. Right. And so having those conversations, I just think like the older they get, the easier it is to talk about this stuff and also model like look, I messed up today. I said something that I wish, you know, that like, I wish I had phrased it differently on TV or I have this really hard thing I'm super nervous about. 
I think it's weird for them to see their parents not just like going through their lives, but actually admitting when things are hard. But um, I guess I try, I'm trying to model that like I, stuff is hard for me too. Yeah. Of I want to talk about like common themes amongst these women. So I think that this is such an incredible time for young women, right? W- women who are in their teens, in their early 20s, have so many role models to look up to. The Whitney Wolf Herds of the world, you, all these women, and you put them all into one book, right? So what- Well, would- we we actually aren't featured in the book. We what? We aren't featured in the book. No, I know. I know. Maybe, maybe book part book two. two. Maybe okay. book Volume two. two. Book two. Um, but so like, can we talk about, which I know we've touched on a little bit. Let's talk about some common themes. I love how you say there was a common theme where women focus on achieving a greater purpose beyond profits. And I think that that is really interesting because we assume, right, Profit, profit, profit. Profit is the new growth. Like, if you've got to be profitable, you've got to, like, this is all that matters. How much money can we make? How can we scale? Do women come from a different place? Like, let's talk about that. Yeah. So female founders are more likely to create companies that have some social or environmental good in addition to making money. And there are a lot of different stats on this. Like one of the studies say women are 20% more likely than men to found companies that have an additional purpose. I think it's actually higher than 20% more than men. From what I've seen, um, this is something that a lot of women are thinking about. Like, how can my company not just be making money, but also have some additional good? So like Whitney Wolf heard, like Bumble's a huge success. I know you you were involved in Bumble. Yeah, we, we worked for Whitney. So we, worked, we worked for Whitney for, for four years. And she's yeah. very yeah. impressive. And I think you should talk a little bit about her story because she turned a very, you know, challenging situation into a lot of success. Totally. And for her, it was like, this is not just about making money, it's changing the dynamics of dating. How can I make sure that what I'm doing is having some social good as well? And so there are a lot of reasons why people think that women might be more likely to have these purpose-driven companies. One, I think, is back to the challenges of like juggling all these expectations, is that if women, especially women with kids and families, are going to work and pour their life, like their lifeblood into a startup, sometimes it's easier if you know that that startup isn't just about returning money to investors, but also really going to have a big impact. And when the going gets tough and you're having a bad day, knowing like, if I could just push through, this could really help the world. I think that element is much more important than we could even imagine. Like sort of like that extra boost of energy coming from like knowing you're helping people. But also it's easier to raise money for founders who have who are women, who have an extra uh, purpose because it sort of helps fit that stereotype that women are supposed to be warm and nurturing, um, which is something that is sort of dominant throughout this business world is like women have to be warm and nurturing. They also have to be strong, aggressive leaders, sort of have to be both successful men and female leaders at the same time. And be, having a purpose-driven company can kind of help check that box. Um, but it's so interesting looking at the ways that women are finding these opportunities to have an impact. And I think that there's great potential for these purpose-driven companies to help attract and motivate employees. Like wouldn't employees, especially younger employees, prefer to work for a company that is changing the world or somehow helping the world? And I think now, especially like with a great resignation and quiet quitting and all these things, You want people to really care about the purpose of what they're doing. So I think there's that. And then also like for consumers, I'd rather spend money on a company that I thought was like good for the environment than one that was just like another run-of-the-mill company. And so I think thinking about purpose along with profits is really important for for businesses. And I think now more than ever, totally essential. I was going to say, do you think that this bubble is bursting? The more conversations 
I'm having more conversations and seeing more conversations about quality over, um, over, uh, profit. And I know, you know, Sarah and I have a clothing brand with our sister, favorite daughter, and we have I'm these big, con- fa- big fan. I love okay, the good, great. trousers. Thank yeah. you. Um, we have these conversations all the time where there's a decision that we could make that would give us a better margin on something. But then all of a sudden you see the quality shift and you're like, nope, can't make that decision. And we're always kind of pushing up against those, those decision, those decision-making factors that like could grow the business. But then it's so short-sighted because then you lose the customer because they don't like the quality. And I like everyone I know doesn't want to go to Whole Foods anymore. It's sold to Amazon. And now everywhere you look in the aisles, it's all the 365 brand, which isn't even usually organic. And it's like, it's, they're like fucking with your head. And I look at it and I'm like, is the bubble bursting on this thing where you have to push for profit? Companies have so much money. They're making so much money. There's more billionaires than ever. And and I'm not trying to have a social conversation about it, but do you think that quality is starting to be prioritized for the first time? Yeah, or but again? I actually think maybe it's stop. Companies have to stop pushing for short-term profit, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it's more thinking about the long-term because, like, when you're making that decision not to sacrifice quality to have your customers be really loyal over the long term, like that is a long term investment in your relationship with your customer, right? So I think it's this trade off between short term and long term. And there was some really interesting stuff in the book about how women are more likely to be long term thinkers. And I was so surprised to find that it comes back to this idea of gratitude. Um, and I was doing all these interviews and I found, um, so I was using this like transcription service called Otter, which records everything and transcribes it. And a couple of the women I was talking to kept on talking about practicing gratitude and waking up and doing a gratitude prayer, a gratitude practice. I was like, what does gratitude have to do with business? Like, aren't you supposed to be driving for progress? And I went back through the transcripts and like the word gratitude popped up time after time after time. Like, I feel blessed. I feel lucky. I have so much gratitude for my opportunity. And I was like, what is going on here? And I found this study that showed how A, women are more comfortable practicing gratitude. For men, sometimes it makes them feel a little uncomfortable. Like maybe they owe someone something. Whereas women are like, oh, I just love this feeling of like how grateful I am to have these opportunities in the world. So women are more likely to feel that. And then if you practice gratitude and it enables you to do more long-term planning and thinking about like, what do I want for the long-term? Not like what's the short-term payoff like right now. And that ties into like trying to help the environment or do the right thing for for society. So I kind of feel like all of these things are intertwined. I also think practicing gratitude just puts you in the right headspace to lead. It puts you, it centers you. So you can show up ready to collaborate and ready to be a good leader and ready to listen and ready to like be forward thinking and right like it's everybody says that the people not just women men whoever but yes I think you're right I think like if I were to say to Tommy like you should start a gratitude journal he'd be like excuse me what like he just you know and I get don't want to generalize because a lot of men are doing the work and a lot of men are in therapy and all those things but I do think women are a little bit more open to going you know deep but yeah, I think I think that the whole gratitude thing, everybody says that the people I know who start their morning off really sitting in what they are grateful for, it changes your entire day. And if you can start your 100%. day like that, 
And I think about this woman, Julia Collins, who created a company called Planet Forward, and they're doing regenerative agriculture. Did I say that right? Regenerative agriculture and trying to help like the soil be healthier. She said, like, we are not doing this for the next year. Like, we are not going to have an impact in a year. I need to be thinking about this like 80 years from now. Like, what is the right thing for me to do now for my children? And having that kind of mindset totally changes the way you're making business decisions. And like, maybe what happens next week isn't doesn't matter as much. Like maybe the stakes aren't as high and I cannot let that stuff bother me and think more about the long term. I do think women, sorry. I just want to say, I do think that women, and don't get me wrong, I think some of the 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 people that have the greatest impact on ch- their children are fathers. Like we cannot, we're, this is not like a taking down dads or men, but I do think there's something innate, like there's just something animalistically about caring a child, right? As a woman, you are so much more passionate about their future. I mean, mm. I don't want to say it wrong. I, I don't want to. I don't no, want to I think that's true. offend people, but there is something to that animalistically about like no, wanting a, to leave a, the planet. We have know, a much more primal instinct to yeah. protect the children that we, but can we you know, say that? Cause dads have the same, pr- this, I, don't, but I, don't I do know, think, but, I do think that people of all genders, once they have kids, their mindset shifts because it's not as much about them yeah. and more like, well, they're these, these beings that I created or I'm taking care of. And I need to think about like how to take care of them for the long term. So I think you see a shift like in, in all parents when they're like, wait a second, it's not just about me. It's not just about what I, I want right now. It's about what's going to be best for my kids because they're, they're an extension of me. Okay, so I use I did a Nutrafol ad, okay? And it's so interesting how many women and men by the way responded, more women than men, responded going, "You don't understand. I've like lost half of my hair. You don't understand. I have a patch, I'm balding here. You don't understand." So many people are dealing with hair thinning and hair loss, but like it's still very it's like menopause. Like no one wants to talk about it. You know, it's this thing that nobody is really talking about. There's nothing cute about losing your hair. No, but ev- ev- it's clearly happening to everybody. I mean, it doesn't seem to be happening to you. I'm on neutral, babe. Oh, wasn't going to say it. Way to bring it around. Wasn't going to say it. Well, it's been happening to me for a really long time. I take so much stuff. I take so many freaking supplements. I'm telling you, if I didn't take all the supplements I took, I would look like a shriveled little prune. The point is, is that you do look like a prune. Um, the, the point is that um, shedthesilence.com is a conversation where people are having the conversation they don't want to have and talking about their hair story and it's helping other women. And so their story is about, you know, how they are losing their hair, how they're getting their hair back and just like how uncomfortable it is, how insecure it makes you. And, you know, I think it's just, it's so important. Like when I was, Sarah's never gone through this, but when I was losing my hair, when I was about 33, I just went through a a lot of hair loss. I think most of it was stress related. Um, and it was just like, it was really shocking how uncomfortable it made me. I never wanted to be the girl that has like a head full of um, fake hair, but then I had to do some. Uh, you got that halo made. I got that. I got a halo made. It's like a ring, and like you a- like traveled with it. Yeah, I love though that Nutrafol is clearly a very successful business. It's it's working, so people keep purchasing it. But that they're doing, they don't need to be doing something like this. But that they're like on a mission to normalize female hair issues, and they've created a space for everyone to talk about it. Go read your stories. Go read a story at shedthesilence.com. Go share a story. Um, let's talk about it. Your hair story could help another woman. Another woman. You've always been really vocal when it was not sexy to do so, like when you were single, you I would know. be like, so true. I like, 
Yeah. I'd be like, where's my hair? Yeah, you'd always be like, I've lost all my hair. I'd be like, Aaron, you're single. Like, maybe you shouldn't be. But you were always so and look, open and about it. I got married. So it all worked out. It was yeah. okay. Join the conversation at shedthesilence.com. That is shedthesilence.com. The other day I got into bed. You know, I, I get the beds changed once a week. I got into bed and I was like, no, 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 no. This, this is, is not working for me. This is not bullying I was like, this is... No, something is off. Okay. I was like, something is off. I couldn't put my place it. I was like, wait, what is this? And I was like, okay. And I got up and I checked tags. Okay. The fitted, sh- the, the bottom sheet was Bowling Branch. The top sheet was Bowling Branch. The comforter cover, cover mm-hmm. was not. Cause you know, I wrote, I don't know. I don't know how that one got in there. Like I still oh. have some of that stuff. And I literally was like, get it out. At 10 o'clock at night, I'm in the laundry room. You know, putting on a comforter is a nightmare. Yes, it is. It is a literal nightmare putting on, especially alone. Mm-hmm. And 10.30 at night, I'm going, I, I won't, I will not sleep good. Tommy wouldn't help you? No, he would not. So he wasn't in town. So uh, it just goes to show you I'm all in with Bowling Branch. Yeah, me too. I tried to sneak some linen um, sheets well, that's in my guest room and my guests were not going for it. Well, no, that's terrible. They did not like it. Nobody wants a linen a no. linen linen's not cozy. Uh, Bull and Branch, they genuinely- 100% organic. Then they are the softest, buttery soft. They are free of toxins, pesticides, harsh chemicals, all of the things. They are made by artisans who earn the pay and respect that they deserve. So for a limited time, get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use the promo code FOSTER15 at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code FOSTER15. So were there other surprising patterns that you saw mm-hmm. when you spoke to these women? I know you say that they surprisingly led with vulnerability and that they are cause driven, you know, more than men. Were, were there any like kind of like, well, that's really surprising thread line that I'm seeing with all these women. Well, I think um, back to the idea of like imposter syndrome, I was so shocked by how many women who are CEOs right now didn't think of themselves in that role. Mm. And I interview these CEOs so frequently, men and women, and I sort of assume that everyone has got it all figured out, right? They look like they haven't figured out, they're talking so confidently, but there were a couple of women, I mean, including Gwyneth Paltrow, who said like, I didn't ask for the CEO role. I mean, the idea that Gwyneth was not the CEO of Goop for so many years when she was like the, the representation of this company and doing so much, and she had to ask for the CEO role, right? The board didn't give it to her. She had to say, look, I've earned this. I deserve this role. And the fact that it took her that long to get there, I was like, if Gwyneth Paltrow is having imposter syndrome, then no wonder all of us are. You know, So I was really surprised to see how prevalent that was. And just to come up across this data, like women rate themselves as less effective as uh, than other people rate them. So like there was this huge study of all these employees with male and female bosses. And the employees ranked their female bosses as doing a better job than the female bosses ranked themselves the employees rank their male bosses is doing a less good job than the men rank themselves. And so imposter syndrome is rampant, but maybe women should feel more confident in what they're doing because the men aren't held back by that. Um, The men aren't struggling with that. And so that I think is totally socialized and something we need to train ourselves to get over. Um, So that was really surprising to me just because I'm, I'm always like impressed by other people and don't realize like what maybe they've really struggled with. Do you think that there is a lesson in the Gwyneth Paltrow Goop story because I remember when Goop first launched and it had 
a tremendous amount of backlash of people saying these are $2,000 facials that you're recommending for people to get and they're creams no one can afford and it's elitist and it's, you know, this is not what people need. And from what I remember, I didn't research That's it. That's actually but from what not I, how it started. From what I remember. It started her posting her salad dressings and her no, recipes. No, but when Goop became a, its own website and its own company, it was suggesting things that you should be doing, places you should go, things you should try. And they were all like considered very elitist. And I remember at the time thinking like, oh my God, she must be so embarrassed. If it was me, I would like sink back into my cave and just like turn the website off and just not like her. never go, just go away. And instead she stayed exactly true to what she wanted it to be. And it is still sometimes expensive things. They're, the clothes are expensive. People buy them. The company is thriving and it's massive and people don't hate it. They actually love it. And it's become that thing that you go, okay, well, I'm going to, for my splurge, I'm going to go find the cream on goop because that's going to be the, you know, and by the way, half yourself. the founders we talk to, we go, oh my gosh, we need to get you on goop. It's become Just this. The question, like, is there a lesson in this fact, in this idea, woman, man, anybody founder, someone with an idea that regardless of what the pushback is like, should you never listen to the pushback? Do you always listen to it? Do you listen to it and go like, no, I'm going to be true to myself. And that's where the success draws in. Well, I think what's so interesting about goop and I, I really love writing this chapter in, in my book. So I hope everyone reads this chapter. It was really fun to report out. Um, I think what's interesting is like, she was never saying that her products or her salad dressing recipes were for everybody. Right. And the crit criticism was like, they're not for everybody. And she was like, I know <laughs> that's okay. I, I'm the, I, 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 that's the, that's the point, but like anyone can afford to make her salad dressings with apple cider vinegar. Not everyone can afford to buy the outfits or the, the facials. But I think this idea that like some of it is accessible, some of it isn't. And that's kind of the fun of it. Right. And I think to a certain extent, they leaned into that and said, yeah, we're going to put an $8,000, you know, you know, dob kit on here and see what people think. Cause that's crazy. And we're going to put one crazy thing on there and like a couple people buy it, but for everyone else, it's a point of conversation. So I think kind of acknowledging the criticism and figuring out like where you sit in relation to that can be really useful. And I think at some point she was like, look, you know, we won't sell jade eggs or we will, but we won't um, say that they have some specific, you know, medicinal properties or whatever that was, but just sort of saying like, we know what we know and we're not going to be pretending to be something we're not, we're not a mass market brand and we'll still succeed. It's been really interesting. And especially seeing how like they do have some lower cost options because they do want to like bring people into this brand. Um, so it's been, it's been really interesting. But to I watch actually think the takeaway, like the takeaway or the lesson or the thing to explore, which is more interesting to me is that we all forget. I mean, we probably don't forget, but maybe people listening forget Gwyneth was 38, I believe. Just the the time when women are like really coming into their own as actresses. She, this woman in her late 30s made a decision. She goes, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to gamble on myself. I will not be able to be a full-time movie star and build this business. I will not be able to do both. I, I'm a mother. She's a very hands-on mom. I will not be able to do both. So I think that to me is like, what's so interesting is are women more risk averse? Are they less risk averse? Because she took a risk. She walked away from Hollywood at the height of her game to like build this thing from the ground up. And Goop today is not what it was seven years ago. She was still yeah. like, how am I going to make money here? Yeah. I mean, but I think the fact that she was almost 40 is really important because there's this data that shows that women's confidence increases 
from the time they enter the workforce and, and, and men's confidence decreases. So men start off with really high confidence when they enter the workforce. Who knows why? They have no experience, but they do. <laughs> men, Women start off, and by the way, I can tell you why, but that's another conversation. Women start off with low confidence when they enter the workforce. And then men's confidence declines and women's confidence increases. And it, it good crosses at around age 40. So women, as they get more experience, as they have more time in the world, they gain their confidence and they start to feel their power. And there were a number of women I interviewed who would never have thought about launching a company or going out on their own or betting on themselves and taking that risk on themselves until they were in their 40s. And there was one woman who started a company when she was in in her early 50s, Call of Power, which is this um, amazing cauliflower based, you know, gluten-free food company. And she had had this whole career and she was like, okay, I'm old enough to try something new and crazy. Like, why not? Um, so, and even like Julie Wainwright, who created the real, real, like she had faced all sorts of rejection and failure. She's like, I know this is a good idea and I'm old enough not to wait around. I'm not going to care if anyone tells me it's a bad idea. I, I have the confidence in myself now. So there are advantages for women of getting older. So tell us why, why, why is it the men just like are born with this confidence that they can I start think a company? They're socialized. I think they're told by the world, like you're going to be a great leader. And I think women are told you don't fit the, the stereotype. And women are told you're going to marry a great leader. Yeah. And you don't look like a leader. So, so good luck. You know, you, there's no way you fit that stereotype. I hope that stereotype is trying to starting to change. And that's one reason I wanted to share all these amazing stories of women in the book, just to show like what a leader looks like. These are women of all backgrounds, all races, um, you know, immigrants, non-immigrants, people who grew up in all sorts of different situations, and they are changing the world and changing business. And I think we just need more of those stories out there to break free from this idea that like, oh, I'm entering the workforce. Like, what are my chances of ever making it to the top? Guys, how crazy that Whitney's like 32? Like, it's just crazy, but she's an outlier. I mean, in her, I mean, that is just, she's so. She's she's the youngest woman to ever take a company public. It's so crazy. And, you know, there's not a lot of people. I mean, everybody knows the story is public and, you know, you can go back and figure out what happened to her at Tinder. But it really is such a story of a woman that had so much to lose, like so much to lose getting into the dating space, going against the largest dating company that had like ever existed owned by match group. And to try to take them on when that company actively hated her mom, she's taking Congress on too. It's just, it's no, but it's really impressive. It's just, it's just, it's like an un, it's, it's just an unimaginable amount of confidence. And she really is confident. And I, and I, that's what, something I really love about Whitney is that as women, we feel it's our duty to be self-deprecating, that we have to make you feel better about our success or our beauty or our status in the world. And Whitney doesn't do that. Whitney fully owns her power at every turn. And you don't see that enough. And I mean, maybe we're seeing it more and maybe see that with a lot of these women, but, but like, we're always trying to get out from under that, that hold of, you know, apologizing for our position in business. And I don't know if so much of that is just you and I being women or the things that you and I dealt with as kids that are, have led to that. I don't know. Women apologize too much. We all need to stop apologizing. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me once that she was taught, she's an executive at a studio that she was taught this tiny little trick that when women email someone, they tend to say, hi, just checking in just always happens. Like just wanted to follow up or just this, like you're justifying why you would be asking them for that thing. And she said that a, a female executive said to her, don't use the word just in any emails that you write. You do not need to justify for asking for the thing that you are supposed to be given. 
But, and that to me speaks to the power of women helping each other. I mean, that was the other big surprise in the book in that, I mean, I have amazing female friends. I feel like I have all these amazing female networks of of people who come together and help each other. But I didn't realize there was like a scientific advantage to that. And it turns out that, you know, men, they network a lot more than women do. And men who have the biggest networks are most successful. For women, it's about having a smaller but more diverse network and having people who are going to push you and hold you accountable and remind you what your goals are and remind you that, of course, you can do it. And I think that kind of advice that one woman gave another about like, just take the word just out of every email is the kind of thing that's very little, but can really help you navigate a workplace. And I think that's why women right now, it's really wonderful that they're coming together. And I've seen it so much in the course of reporting this this book out and I'm, it makes me really optimistic. I love how you talked about, cause it's so true, your early days at Fortune, you would miss out on promotions or getting a specific story because you weren't on the golf course with all the guys, right? Like yeah. the business deals happen on the golf course, the bonding, right? The like, and as women, I think it's so true. If we're not invited to the after hours or if we're not invited to the, uh, you know, the cigar lounge or whatever, you're kind of like not being included. Yeah. And you're not part of the conversation. And I tell the story in the book about a colleague of mine, like my buddy at work at Fortune magazine, and he would go play tennis with our bosses. And like, I'm terrible at tennis. I was not invited to play. Even if I were good, they wouldn't have invited me and they would play tennis and then they have drinks and they talk about stories and he'd get assignments. And then he'd come into work and tell me about it the next day. And I would go crazy. I was like, oh, this is so unfair. I'm not even in those Like, I'm not even there to have an opportunity to have that sort of more casual, friendly pitch session. And, and, and like, that's how it worked back then. And I think it's increasingly people are aware that it shouldn't work that way. Um, But it used to really drive But you also took, you know, you took the responsibility of that off. You didn't like demonize the executives who are inviting him out to play tennis. Because you said something I thought was interesting, which is like, of course they did that. People want to um, mentor someone that looks like them and feels like them. They want to take that person under their wing when they see some of themselves in that person. That yeah. That is sort of like unintentional bias, right? That's just sort of inbred in us as human beings that we are drawn to someone that reminds us of ourselves. We're all selfish. And so you go, oh, I was like that. I had the same background. And that's something that I think it's, it's not like your bosses were intentionally excluding you as much as they were excited to mentor a young version of themselves, which is why we need more female mentors. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's malicious. I once like witnessed an older guy taking a younger guy under his wing at a conference. And I watched them talk to each other. And you know what they connected about? They were, they were wearing the same salmon color pants. You know what I'm talking (laughs) about? Those like kind of pink preppy pants. And they're wearing the same button down. And one was 50 and one was 28 and they like bonded over that and they were like the same make and model but in different ages and they became pals and they the older one helped the younger one out and they just connected at a conference because they were wearing the same very preppy outfit and I just you see that and you're like that's not malicious I mean it's not necessarily the way business should be done you can't think that there's malice behind it. It's more just an obliviousness to how powerful our biases all are. You know, what's crazy is that Aaron and I just raised, I mean, we did a first closing on an early stage venture fund, super small, like CNA round, but fundraising as a woman being told like, oh yeah, let me intro you to our diversity arm of the fund from, you know, for a fund to fund investment. 
I mean, it's crazy times. Where do you see venture going in 10 years? Do you feel like it really shifting? Because I think there's some like crazy data, like 8% of venture. Yeah. Crazy. 2%. 2% of VC dollars last year went to female-led companies. 82% went to male-only founding teams. But the data all shows that that companies with diverse founders perform better. Companies with female leaders have higher profits and return their, you know, either sell or go public and give their returns to investors a, a year earlier on average than male-led companies. So all that data tells me that if people care about making money, they'll start investing in more women. So that's one reason why I'm optimistic. I also think that women have more experience doing more with less. They just have more practice. And so because of that, I think they may be better prepared to manage through whatever economic downturn it is that we're facing right now. Okay. I have one question that I saw come in for you yeah. before you go that I thought was Well, we um, had 500 helpful. and we got to none of them. Um, These were all just our own. How to deal with mansplaining and ageism with men in executive teams? Like, how do you tackle that? I think the first thing is figuring out how not to let it bother you. And because I've definitely had those times when something like really stings and you just fume and sit on it and like, let it really eat, eat away at you. And I think figuring out how to identify what part of that is like purely bias actually has nothing to do with me. I'm just going to like separate this and put this over there. And then which part of the feedback is really helpful and useful and be like, okay, it may have been given in a super obnoxious tone, but this one thing he said was really useful and I think sometimes when we're annoyed by the mansplaining tone of it, we can't actually take the valuable pieces from it. So it's like, if you figure out how not to let that bother you, because you're like, this guy's biased against me for any number of reasons, then you could separate like the valuable part from the unvaluable part. Aaron and I talk a lot on the podcast. This is a theme that we cover on, I would almost say in every episode, it creeps in a little bit. Let's talk about women feeling competitive with other women. I I suffer from this. Aaron Les. I don't know if you should say suffer. I'd say you are a perpetrator of the problem. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I, I, I want to just, I think other women can relate to really wanting to look at other women as their allies and as their teammates. But I think that women do feel, I feel more competitive with women than I do with men. And I hate that about myself. And it's something that I, I genuinely work on because I, I, it's not something to be proud of. So, but you're, but you're aware of it. I mean, a yeah. lot of people like, and the fact that you're not proud of it and you're aware of it is like such a huge thing. Don't you think? Yeah. And I can, tr I know where it comes from. It just comes from feeling insecure. It just comes from like being jealous or envious or like, I wish I was more, it really is a compliment to the woman. I'm not like jealous of some like loser doing nothing with their lives. Um, so like, how does someone handle, let's just talk about it. I'll be quiet now. So look, I can't speak about this, like from a social standpoint, but I do know in business, in, there were very real reasons for women not to help each other in like the eighties and nineties, right? Um, there was reasons for women not just to be competitive with each other, but to not help other women in the workplace at all. And that was because there was really only room for one woman at a time in the room, one woman in the C-suite, if they were lucky, one woman around a conference table. And so, and I've talked to some of these women um, about how like they knew that like if they made it there, like there wasn't room for anyone else. So they better not put a hand down and try to help anyone else up. So I it think was literally Hunger like, Games. It was, yeah, but but you know that times have changed, right? Now companies do have more than one woman in the room, and I think the reality is that women actually are successful and more successful if they're not just surrounded by men, if they have other women there with them. And I've noticed a huge shift 
just in the past 10 years of how women are helping each other. Um, and when I first entered the business, there were older women, especially in TV, who were not going to help me. Why would they help me? And I remember um, I'm friends with this re reporter at ABC, Rebecca Jarvis, and she and I were like instant friends when we started at CNBC together in that way that we were like, we don't know what we're doing. Let's be friends and help each other out. And I remember this older woman said to us, we were having coffee or something and just like, you know, standing around catching up. And she said, don't you girls know you're supposed to hate each other. You're supposed to be rivals. You're not supposed to be friends. Didn't you get the memo? And she was obviously like kind of joking, mm -hmm. but not really. Mm -hmm. And we were like, what? Like, we need this. Like, I need, I need this friendship. Like, this is like saving me. And um, that woman was, you know, no longer in a senior role in television. And, um, and I feel like that's not what the world is like now. So I think things have changed and women in senior positions understand that they need to bring other women with them because they don't want to be in a male dominated environment. And, um, and I don't know about the whole social piece of it. There's always going to be a bit of resentment when your generation had different expectations than the next generation. And so there's a lot of people who are like, well, nobody helped me, so I'm not going to help you. And but I, I think I've also talked to a lot of women who are like, nobody helped me. And I'm so glad things have changed. Like, I'm not going to let that happen to another person. No one is going to have to suffer the way I did. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of women of that generation who are older and had to fight it out in the 80s and 90s have taken like one of two approaches. One is like, let's change things. Like now I have the resources and the perspective to be helpful to women of a younger generation. And then other women are like, I can't, this is a whole new landscape. But there were a couple of women who, especially when I was like super pregnant, took me aside and I was like, why are you talking to me? And they're like, I'm going to tell you that this is going to be okay. Like, I'm going to mm. tell you that I'm here to help you. And like, they didn't need to do that. And I was like, so confused because I was like, why are, why is someone helping me? But then I realized like, this is like a new, it's a new era. So, um, I, and there's also like all this data showing that women who are leaders are more likely to invest in diversity in their employee base. So I do think things have changed. I, I think you shouldn't be um, competitive with other people because you're amazing and shouldn't be insecure about anything. But you have such a positive spin on these things. I so have a lot of issues. <laughs> so I, um, here's a good question. I think you can be helpful with advice for a young woman early in her career who would like to grow into a management role. Read my book, When Women Lead. <laughs> Honestly, great advice. <laughs> Literally, I should just say, uh, just read the book. Um, there's so much research about how women are not getting that first promotion when men are. And so women are always at a disadvantage if they like miss out on those first couple of promotions. So I think having a really good sense, and like there's this new data out from Lena and McKinsey, they did this study, like it shows a graphic of how women are like losing out on these management roles. And so they're not making it to the C-suite. So the, I mean, the graphic was really good. I recommend everyone looking at that. But um, I think this idea of like keeping tabs on what's going on in your organization, like when is the right time to ask for promotion? What are the things you need to do to qualify and figuring out ways to hold yourself accountable? If you don't have a mentor, who's the right kind of mentor to reach out to and, and figuring out like what you need to do. Cause just showing up is not going to get you into a management role. You need to figure out like what those things are that are going to distinguish you. And a lot of that is like putting in the extra work and, uh, and figuring out who, like which relationships are valuable, having friends that can hold you accountable and help you as well, I think is really important. This whole thing about the power of women to help each other. Um, I really believe in, and I've seen it in, in action, which is why I hope you uh, realize you don't need to be competitive with people. Yeah. 
You know, it's so interesting, like in this whole process with Aaron and I fundraising and like, I was just thinking back to when I know that I have Zooms with men or when I'm going to, you know, have an in-person meeting with a man, whether I want him to invest in the fund or whatever it is, I always wear turtlenecks. <laughs> and I'm like just sitting here thinking to myself, like, is that my issue or is this just like it's really real that men do look at women. Like if for some reason, like I did have cleavage or something like, is that me being in a, like in my mind, I'm like, that would be inappropriate. Like I need to be very covered when going to a man asking him for money to, right. You know what I'm saying? Like I kind of, let's just chat about it for a second. Is this like just my own issue or is this like really real? Well, I think that everyone has to wear the thing that makes them feel powerful. And I have these superhero dolls behind me. Hold on. I know this is not a big deal, but I feel like there's like, when I started writing this book and I had little boys, like, this is what I'm doing visual thing. This is what a superhero looked like. This is what came from Amazon. It was Supergirl. She was wearing a mini skirt and a crop top. And I was like, this is not what I want my kids to think that a superhero looks like. And then over, and, and at the time, like women were covering up and trying not to look like this. And then like, now this is what a superhero looks like. Captain Marvel, she's like wearing a leather jacket. She's fully outfitted, fully clothed. And then Shuri, who's from Black Panther, she's like scientist's little sister. And I feel like these things, like I always think about like, what's your armor? I've never shown these on a podcast before, but here you go. But like, what's your armor? Like, what is the... What is your superhero costume that's going to make you feel like you can go fight and conquer the world? And if it means that you feel strong when you're wearing a turtleneck, then wear your turtleneck. But I talked to this one um, CEO who has like, like, you know, waist length black hair and she wears red dresses. And she's like, I'm in, in surrounded by dudes in vests who look like Patagonia wearing, wearing the same uniform. And like, I'm going to wear a red dress. I'm going to stick out. And if people think less of me, then I'll catch them by surprise. So she's figuring out how to use this, like what one um, researcher calls like gender judo, like being super feminine in a way that's really authentic to her and maybe confusing to other people. But I think it's all about like, what's your superhero uniform? Like if you're like, I have a pitch meeting, I'm wearing my turtleneck. I feel great in it. And I'm not going to have to worry about like looking too feminine then wear that. But I don't think you should worry about it or double, double, you know, check if that's okay. Because like, that's your uniform. And like, you feel powerful in that. It weirdly is my uniform, but I do think I'm a kid of the eighties too. So it still sort of is in my mind that if I'm wearing like a tight t-shirt or a tight something, they're going to think I'm dumb, right? Like there is something. Mm-hmm. Well, I you, think have, it's you like, really do have two extremes. You're either in a turtleneck or your tits are literally hanging out. So maybe just find a common ground somewhere in the middle, just like a regular high neck t-shirt, okay? <laughs> but no turtlenecks, no tits out. Just pick one. Um, Thank you, Erin. So this this person wrote in literally the thing we were just talking about that, that happened to you. Um, the men in my company take out the younger guys for drinks and the women get left behind. But what do I do? Like she wants to know. I think you invite yourself, right? You're like, I'd love to come. Yeah. I love drinking. I love whiskey. And then you I think drink you, them I think under you the invite table. Yourself, or you point out, or you say, Hey, I heard you're doing drinks. Like, can we have a breakfast? Um, there was this whole phase, and I think it was sort of post me too, where companies were trying to get rid of the afterwork drinks, and a lot of CEOs or managers were saying, like, I'm not going to do drinks or things that are like late at night. A, it's like excluding all the women who want to go home to their kids. 
And it's just maybe not a good idea for people to be getting wasted together after work. So like, let's just do breakfasts and lunches. So like, I think that some companies were really aware of how exclusionary, like the late night drinks with the guys can be and try to like create systems to make sure that wasn't happening. But I do think that it's like, could be really annoying and risky and that stuff still goes on. So I think like saying like, Hey, I heard you have drinks. Can I join next time? Or, Hey, can we have a breakfast? Um, But I think this whole idea of like mentorship and those relationships are really important. And by the way, you're not going to only have female mentors because there aren't enough women in management positions for them to be mentoring all the younger women. So you need to have both male and female. And by the way, we have some incredible male mentors. We have men in our lives who have been some incredible mentors. And you said your first job, your first boss at fortune was an amazing guy. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the only reason I've had a career in television at all was because I had this boss who A, taught me how to be a business journalist and B, was like, yeah, you can go on TV. And I was like, oh, I'm so nervous. Why why would I go on TV? I was 22 years old. He's like, no, just do it. You'll be great. Don't worry about it. And I always think about him as treating me the way he'd want someone to treat one of his daughters. You know, he has two girls. And he was like, of course, I'm going to encourage you. Like, you can do this. Don't be afraid. And just having someone who was older and who I really respected saying that to me made a massive difference in my life. And so we all need those people, whether they're men or women, to give us that little boost and say, Mm -hmm. we're going to be okay. You know, it sounds to me like I'm looking at these questions and and hearing you talk. There's a lot of questions about, um, you know, how to handle when men talk over you in a professional setting, how to deal with men mansplaining. I mean, women also talk over women. You talk over me all the time. A woman talks over me more than any man. You're literally doing it right now. Sorry. You're literally doing it right now. Had to say it. Um, And how to break into the boys club and be respected and, And like what I'm seeing in those themes is that obviously there's going to be, you know, still some leftover remnants of, of bias in the workplace, more men there than women, or, you know, some of the older senior people at a company that are part of that other generation where they, you know, learned a different dynamic that was in place. And like, to me, you are as a woman, probably going to have to accept that you are going to be navigating some of these things that guys just don't have to navigate. Yeah. And it feels like it's kind of, it it is sort of on us, but we also get the benefits from it to handle it and take it in stride. Like you said before, like don't get defensive. Don't be, don't get your feelings hurt when something happens that makes you uncomfortable. Like, you know, someone talks over you and, and, and all of a sudden take it really personally. Like we, we kind of do have to handle ourselves in a certain way to be able to progress in our career. Right. Yeah. And look, I'm really optimistic and I really wanted the stories in my book to be super encouraging. So I was really kind of conflicted about how to go through all of this data about how women have it. But what I realized is if you know the double standards you're going to be up against, you could do a much better job of navigating them. And I found that useful in my own life. Like when I was criticized for being mean or harsh in my interview style, I said to the guy, would you have said the same thing to a man? Like, and I referenced you know, I, you know, are, are you, I, I referenced in my head, this idea of like the study with the men being judged on their substance, women are judged on their style. And so like, I was armed with that data. So I knew not to let it bother me, but there's this amazing story in my book of a woman named Aya Badir. She's a Lebanese immigrant. She's an engineer. And she created this tech company for kids called little bits. And she's so inspiring. And she was telling me these stories of pitching to VCs, And they would have all sorts of biases against her and say crazy things like, where's your white male co-founder? Like, you know, you can't do this on your own. And I said to her, like, how did you keep going? Like, why didn't you give up? That sounds crazy and terrible. 
And she said, look, I have faced bias because I'm a woman. I'm Lebanese. I'm an immigrant. Like she's like, I face all sorts of bias, but I got used to it and, and got used to dealing with it by sort of thinking about it, like remembering a jacket when it's cold out. You know, it's going to be cold. You bring your jacket. And so you go about your business. Maybe you're a little bit cold, but you're prepared. And I was like, this is amazing. If you could prepare for bias by being like, I'm going to face it. They're going to be a little jerky. I'm going to be prepared. And then I could move on with my day. I was like, that was a, a revelation to me. Love that lesson. Well, I love that lesson. Okay. All right. This is everyone, good. Everyone has to read your book. This book is so fascinating. Such great stories. And we didn't even go into, and I wanted to, but I won't even bring it up. Well, you would not. Wait, you wait, wait, tell what us. is it? No, I was just going to ask you about like, someone said to me that they love this book because it's like the anti-girl boss culture. And, and I just wanted to like, I don't, I know there's a backlash now on kind of girl boss culture and I don't fully understand what it is. Is it because we're saying girl instead of boss? Is it, I don't know what it is, but, but maybe, I mean, I brought it up, so I might as well just talk about it. Like, do we, is girl boss outdated? Is girl, girl boss, like we're, we're justifying the, the like pronoun instead of just that you're a boss at all? Like what, what is it? Why don't we like it? I don't know. I, 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 to be honest, I don't really know, but I feel like there was this sort of trend um, of taking this idea of being powerful and feminine at the same time. And it kind of got twisted into maybe a criticism or maybe people were condescending about it. But I feel like this is not about girls. This is about women. And this is about women sort of being true to who they are and changing the conversation. Like we don't have to try to be anything we're not. We can use our own skills and succeed with our own traits and understanding that like it's okay if we don't fit those stereotypes of what a leader looks like, because maybe we can use our own characteristics, even things that we thought of as flaws, as superpowers. Mm -hmm. I love well, that. I'm excited for women. I'm excited for my two daughters. I'm excited for them to come up um, knowing at a very young age that they can do anything. I didn't grow up feeling like I could do anything. And I feel like our generation, our girls, they can wear what they want. They can be who they want. They can show up where they have a seat at the table and we're doing that for them. So I'm so excited for women to compete less and collaborate more. Yeah. And your book is fantastic. Your book You're is incredible. A fantastic, fantastic writer. I love reading it. And we need a part it. two. We definitely need a part you two. You need a podcast. And um, I'm very excited. Everyone should read this book. It's fantastic. You both are amazing. And um, I'm so grateful to be on here with you. Thank it was you so, so great to meet you. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry. I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced by... Be, can you, do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our, our associate producer is Montana McBurney. See? Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great. <laughs> <laughs>